قاعده في السماء وطلب من عند ربي الاستغلال التام الشعب الصحراوي Hello, hello. Welcome to Rising with the Tide podcast. This is episode 37, <laughs> I think. It's been a while. Um, welcome back, everyone. We've, we've, had, uh, we've had streaming on for a while, but due to some unforeseen circumstances, uh, you are currently listening to a uh, Zoom, uh, an old, old school Zoom episode. Um, kind of dropped his router on the floor. <laughs> Basically, the copper cables in my uh, in my current housing shelter do not support streaming. <laughs> But it's fine. We'll be back into it in uh, probably in a couple of weeks. So maybe not the episode after this, but the episode after that should be streaming. I know how people miss us streaming. <laughs> They really don't. <laughs> no one watches the streams, but it makes us happy when there's one person in the chat that asks a question. You know, yeah, it's, like, worth it. it's worth we it. Both, we both cry inside a little bit. We're like, yes, yes, amazing. Uh, but yeah, um, so without further, further ado, today we are uh, having <clears throat> Dr. Joanna Allen, senior lecturer at Northumbria. The Department of Geography and Environmental Sciences. Uh, she holds a uh, Leverhulme Early Career Fellowship um, and has been doing work on everything from uh, wind imaginaries to poetry to um, colonialism even and everything in between. And we're super excited to talk to you today. Welcome on the show. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. Thanks very much. Thanks for inviting me and for your your interest in my work yeah no thank you for uh for giving us a bit of your time i know that uh yeah as we've we've discussed uh privately with you before things are there's all there's never enough time and i'm sure with the strikes and everything yeah it's uh it's a bit tough um so i guess we can start maybe with uh quickly going over this you know something we'd like to do in general but to go over um your the beginnings of your career as a researcher and um, how you came to be interested in, you know, the Sahara mostly, I guess, which is kind of a, a big part of, of your research nowadays, um, but also just in more generally the, the topics that you, that we will discuss soon after. Okay. Yeah. I guess to go back to the beginning, um, it would be my undergraduate studies. So I studied um, Hispanic studies Um mostly Spanish and Latin American uh, literature, film, history, politics, a bit of a mix in my particular degree. Um, but just by coincidence, uh, we had one lecturer who focused on Western Sahara, which was one of Spain's two um, former African colonies. Um, and I remember at the time, I was really surprised to hear about the situation in Western Sahara. As an undergraduate student, I like to think I was quite in the know about international issues. I was involved in lots of um, societies, we call them in UK academia, student mm -hmm. societies, um, uh, activist ones and so on. And um, it surprised me to hear about this this conflict that I'd never heard of. And I was in my... my um, second year at university by then and I had no idea that Spain 
had had any colonies in Africa by his, mm. by my second year into a Hispanic studies degree. So right. um, that was, yeah, quite shocking that I had, I, I didn't know about that or I, I hadn't made the effort to find out as well, you could say. So that sparked my interest. Um, I did a year abroad in Spain as is normal in a Hispanic studies degree. Um, and on my year abroad, um, I found out that there are hundreds of Spaniards who go to the Sahrawi refugee camps in Algeria every year to run a marathon. So um, okay. <laughs> I suppose we'll, we'll get on to the topic of why there are Sahrawi yeah. refugees in Algeria. But anyway, and, and the, I the improbable, with... I, the improbable concept of a, a marathon in a refugee camp. Yeah, so. that's true as well. <laughs> yeah. So this was um, a chance for me to visit the camps and I wanted to do my dissertation on um, gender relations in Sahrawi society. So um, yeah, basically that I, I, I've uh, found an opportunity to, to go there and do some research during my undergraduate dissertation. Um, and then I did a master's after that. And then, after, then I worked um, in NGOs, in the public sector for a few years um, in various different jobs, mostly research and advocacy jobs, um, doing research and using it for lobbying for, for different causes. Um, and in my free time, I volunteered with Western Sahara Campaign, which is a UK-based solidarity group with the Sahari people, and also with Western Sahara Resource Watch, which is a network of solidarity activists and Saharawis living in the diaspora, some Saharawis living in Western Sahara as well. So I, I volunteered with these organizations in my free time. Um, and eventually I decided to do a PhD um, and I had this interest in the case of the Sahara, um, but also wanted to do something new. So I ended up doing my PhD comparing um, histories of women's resistance movements in Equatorial Guinea and Western Sahara. Hmm. And in terms of energy, because I'd been volunteering with Western Sahara Resource Watch for so many years. Um, so we, um, again, I suppose we'll come to talk about the Western Sahara conflict a bit, but for now to say it's a country that is at war at the moment, Western Sahara, most of it is occupied by another country. Lots of Saharawis see their natural resources as the reason why they were colonized by Spain yeah. and why they're still under a military occupation today. And energy resources are a key part of this. So my interest in energy stems from there, I suppose. And also mm -hmm. one of my day jobs was in National Energy Action, which is um, a charity campaigning on behalf of the fuel poor, the energy poor, so for lower energy prices, better housing stock in Britain um, that plays such a role in energy efficiency um, right. and better um, living wages, I suppose. So these sort of three issues. So again, this fed my interest in, in energy, I suppose. And that's that's where, where it came from, really. Yeah, um, maybe before we get into the research that you have done yourself, um, I have to say, Jamie and I, uh, you know, we we very quickly discussed this earlier, but uh, him and I, but we know extremely little, even honestly, that's even an overstatement 
uh, about the Sahrawi people, Western Sahara, mm. and just any kind of conflict going on between Morocco and, and uh, Western Sahara. So if you could, you know, enlighten us even just a little bit about the basics of the conflict. Um, I And, you know, I... I like to think our listeners are very, very smart people, but <laughs> but yeah, no, like you said, it's a very, uh, it's slightly under-talked, uh, under, under-represented conflict. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And yeah, it's completely not normal not to know a lot. It's never, it's very rarely in media in the global north. It's rarely on academic syllabuses for well, as I said, for Hispanic studies, but in um, Arabic studies or North Africa area studies, it doesn't it doesn't often feature. Mm-hmm. So it's it's normal that people don't know about it. Um, so um, Western Sahara was to go back in history, I suppose, where the conflict comes from. It was a Spanish colony. So in the 1884 Berlin conference when the powers of Europe decided to divide up Africa between themselves um what today is called Western Sahara became Spanish Sahara and was handed to the the Spanish basically um and they eventually began to settle there not really until the 40s and 50s but um in 1947 Spanish geologists found phosphate deposits um, and evidence mm. that there was probably oil there. So this sort of pushed the Spanish government to to make to settle in in, in this colony, basically. Um, so right from the start, as in the case of other colonies, I suppose it's about resources and exploitation. Um, in the case of Western Sahara, f- phosphates first and foremost. So phosphates are needed in agricultural fertilizers. So they're integral to our current global food system, um, which made Mm -hmm. phosphates very lucrative for the Spanish. Um, They built a phosphates mine uh, near the country's capital, El Ayun, or they dug a a phosphates mine, I should say. Um, And this is still one of the world's first sources of phosphates. Um, So uh, when we get to the 1970s most African countries have won their independence and Spain's under a lot of pressure to decolonize because they, they they haven't decolonized um, Spanish Sahara obviously hmm. um, and the dictator of Spain Francisco Franco was in a coma in 1975 on his deathbed right. um, and the government rather than decolonize, following the usual UN process for decolonization, instead negotiated agreements with the neighboring Morocco and Mauritania, illegal agreements. Um, These were called the Madrid Accords. And so through the Madrid Accords, Spain agreed to hand over Western Sahara, half of it to Morocco, half of it to Mauritania. And in exchange, uh, Spain would get the UN, UN efforts back, but it would also get continued 35% share in profits from the phosphate mine and also they'd have wow. continued a- access yeah continued access to western sahara's very rich fisheries so going back centuries and centuries fishermen uh, from the canary islands have fished in western sahara's waters it's a 
important source for Spain for its fish. So this was mm -hmm. an important economic consideration as well. So they pretty much literally sold off their colony. Yeah. Um, and the Moroccan, sorry, I, I yeah, just want to ask, uh, does Western Sahara have kind of an identity as a as a nation or or as a people like um i guess it, i'm not yeah. sure even if you know national identity is the mm -hmm. right word to use but at least some form of identity that that bonds them together yeah yeah i mean they very much do it's a constructed identity as are all national identities um but certainly today they have a very strong national identity so traditionally mm -hmm. the indigenous people have Western Sahara were nomads. Uh, they lived in nomadic tribes, which roamed the territory today called Western Sahara, but also parts of southern Morocco, parts of Western Algeria, and parts, large parts of Mauritania. So culturally, Saharawis are very similar to Mauritanians. They speak the same dialect of right. Arabic, Hassaniya. Their traditional dress is the same. Um, there's lots of cultural similarities between Mauritanians and Sahrawis, mm -hmm. less so between Sahrawis and, and Moroccans. Um, and ahead of these 1975 Madrid agreements, Spain was actually thinking about just following the UN process for decolonization. So they'd, they did a census of the Sahrawi population in 1974 to decide who would get to vote in a self-determination referendum. And there was also a UN visiting mission in 1975 to establish, to get a flavor of this, is there a Sahrawi nation? Would they want independence and self-rule or would they rather remain under Spanish governance? Or would they want to integrate with Mauritania or Morocco? And the overwhelming consensus of the members in this UN visiting mission and their conclusion was that Sahrawis were strongly in favor of independence and strongly rejected integration or Spanish rule so there mm -hmm. was a sort of nationalist sentiment um, from this sort of period onwards and there'd been movements for independence since the 60s sort of formal organized movements so the first one was called Harakat Tahrir liberation movement um, that emerged in the 60s. The leader was Mohammed Basiri um, mm. and he was in favor of negotiating sort of gradual independence from Spain in partnership with Spain and to retain some sort of tie afterwards, friendly relations. But he was um, forcibly disappeared by Spain along with many of other leaders of the movement so it, it became right. clear then to the Sahrawis that they wouldn't get independence by peaceful means so yeah. they formed a sort of revolutionary armed movement in favor of independence and this was the Polisario Front who's still the sort of face of the Sahrawi nationalist movement um, so they pursued independence through armed means sort of through tactics like sabotage they sabotaged the conveyor belt of, that goes from the phosphate mine to the port to, uh, military targets and so on um so um when morocco and mauritania invade it's polisario who who um defends the saharawis and fights for for independence um and the 
Moroccan and Mauritanian position was that before um, Western Sahara was a Spanish colony, that this land was terra nullius, um, well, okay. partly terra nullius, but, but with links to the Moroccan Sultanate on the one hand okay. and with the Mauritanian entity on the other. So basically that before the Spain colonized, this territory belonged to Moroccan Mauritania. So their position was that they were getting back what had been theirs. And Hmm. the International Court of Justice, though, Morocco requested that the International Court of Justice um, consider their position and publish an opinion on it. So this was a sort of way of making legitimate the Madrid Accords, perhaps, and justifying their invasion. But the Mm -hmm. International Court of Justice, uh, their opinion was the contrary, really. So they concluded that there was no evidence of any tie of the kind that would constitute sovereignty, Moroccan sovereignty or Mauritanian sovereignty, um, and that the usual process for decolonization should be followed and that the indigenous Sahrawis had a right to a vote on independence. So, And I'm guessing that was... uh instantly ignored by it was yeah it was yeah it was ignored although i if i remember correctly hassan the second who was king at the time he he said on television that the court had 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 ruled in his favor it wasn't a ruling so it was presented otherwise but but yeah basically it it was ignored because it didn't it didn't sort of Mm -hmm. go that way so that's where this the, this conflict came from. So in October 1975, um, Morocco and Mauritania invade from north and south. Um, and this is a curious thing. So if you go into a British well-known bookshop like Waterstones and, and get a mm-hmm. book on history of the Arab world, a generalist book, often if Western Sahara is mentioned at all, the invasion is referred to just by mentioning the Green March. So part of the invasion was a Green March of Moroccan citizens southwards into Western Sahara to reclaim the Sahara. And it was peaceful in the sense that these were unarmed civilians. Mm -hmm. But this was preceded by Moroccan and Mauritanian armies invading and already slaughtering the population. So... It's right. yeah. It, it's um, the history is really it's reductive. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, well, yeah. I I can't say that I've I've heard of the Green March uh, even, but um, but yeah, as you said about your student years, it may also be our own lack of like wanting to to know about these places. Um, but I I wonder how has um. So I, I don't want to jump too far ahead in the history if there if there are very important key events, but um, I wonder how the situation is, I guess today, like in in modern days, are we seeing still uh, a colonial relationship? Yeah. So um, it's a curious one again. If you look at academic legal studies papers. A lot of legal scholars argue that Western Sahara, it's legally still a Spanish colony because it was never decolonized, but there's not any Spanish presence there. Most of the territories occupied by Morocco 
so about two thirds of it probably. Um, and the occupied part is separated from the part controlled by Sahrawis by the longest active military wall in the world. And the part yeah. controlled by Sahrawis, it's really heavily landmined. And they've been trying to remove mines for since 1991, but there's just millions of them. So yeah. there's not a big Sahrawi population in the Sahrawi controlled part of Western Sahara, basically. Although there, I don't think anyone knows exactly what the population is, but there's probably a few dozen thousand nomads that were there mm. until November 2020 when war broke out again. Um, which is another point to, to highlight, I suppose, in, in terms of background information. So Polisario was at war with Mauritania until 1979 and with Morocco until 1991. And in 91, the UN uh, declared a ceasefire on the back of a promise of a self-determination referendum on independence for the Saharawis, which never happened. So from 1991, Till November 2020, there was a stalemate, basically, with various plans put forward by the UN and the referendum continuously being blocked, a very long stalemate. Um, and war broke out again in November 2020. Um, so since then, the nomads that had been in the Sahari part, the Sahari control part of Western Sahara, a lot of them have gone back to the refugee camps in okay. southwest Algeria. So yeah, is it, I guess the, Algeria really like um, an ally to the Sahrawi people in this conflict? It is, yeah. So um, upon the invasion, um, Sahrawi refugees, a lot of them fled eastwards within Western Sahara, but they their refugee camps were, were bombed on four known occasions with napalm. So wow. they realized that they were never going to be safe in their own country. In Algeria. This? This was 1975, 1976. Okay. Um, so yeah, they went, Algeria offered them asylum um, in Tindouf, which is a sort of Algerian military outpost. The Sahrawis have got camps there. There's five camps. There's about 200,000 people live there. Mm -hmm. um, is it in Berber territory? Do you know? Like, I'm not sure, to be honest. Okay. Um, Just out yeah, of curiosity. I, yeah. Um, I'm not sure. Um, so these are also a state in exile. So in 1976, the Polisario de de declared these camps a state in exile. And Algeria, yeah, it's an ally of the Sahrawis. Mm -hmm. I think generally the Algerian role is overplayed. Often yeah. in the media, it's described, Polisario, Polisario is described as Algerian-backed, almost as if Algeria and Morocco were the main players, um, which... Yeah is really wrong like in my opinion trying but... to put it off as a proxy war or something yeah exactly mm. yeah okay. and, and as yeah. i've heard actually i'm hearing now is the tensions between morocco and algeria are all-time high like i have moroccan friends who are worried actually about being drafted in the coming weeks uh, for, oh, wow. for a possible conflict between the oh. two but <laughs> as if we need that right now in the world yeah <laughs> but yeah. um but yeah so i guess maybe it could even be kind of uh, utilized as a sort of argument by one side or the other to uh, facilitate a war if uh, yeah. for other reasons. I mean, that they would need for other or want for other reasons. Um, 
Yeah, Pencil. certainly. Yeah. So I guess um, this seventy-six. Then you, sorry, you were at. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the these refugee camps become a state in exile as well as refugee camps. So it's a curious place. All the camps have schools, local councils, there's museums, hospitals, with very well, very well trained, well educated population. So aside from Algeria, Polisario has other allies mostly. Um, they're in Africa, Middle East, Latin America, and they have educational programs with a lot of these countries. So Dozens of thousands of Sahrawis have been educated in Cuba, for example. Lots of medicine graduates from Cuba. So there's a very well-trained refugee population, but with very little resources. So they'll have hospitals with lots of great doctors, but hardly any equipment. Um, it's like they have everything you'd expect to find in a normal state, but in very unusual circumstances. Um, yeah. yeah. So I guess they've they've uh, would you say that there's kind of um, self determination involved in uh, in a like local democratic level as well? Like, are they able to to impose some kind of you know I, I guess legislative and judicial rule, or are they subject to Algerian laws completely? Um, they have their own courts. To be honest, I'm not sure what parts of law would remain under Algerian jurisdiction. Mm. Um, they have a parliament, national parliament, local councils. There are elections. Um, it's, But it's a one-party state, so there's just okay. Polisario candidates on offer. Um, on the other hand, you see really strong elements of direct democracy. Um, so at election time, um, there's all sorts of mechanisms for the population to um, make their voice heard and engage with their candidates um, and lots of debates and things like that um, at local mm. council level. Um, and yeah, interesting how uh, it's interesting seeing this in practice or, or reading work of others who, who work more on sort of the political institutions of the Sahari Republic. So mm. um, one thing that always stuck in my mind is um, how candidates might recite poetry. Um, and this is okay. something that the population will expect that will help them decide who to, who to vote for. And yeah, it's, um, <laughs> can't imagine that in the UK, like <laughs> no, that's right, <laughs> about yeah. to read some Shakespeare to get elected. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's different, but yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's debatable. That's a question actually I'm mm. doing with my students at the moment on their democracy and democratization module. So um mm. looking at what constitutes a democracy, can we describe the Sahari Republic as a democracy or not? Um and to what extent are understandings of democracy are Eurocentric and these sorts of discussions. So yeah. Mm. Yeah, that and that's that's like incredibly interesting. And following on from that, um, in your paper, decolonizing renewable energy, you speak about how um, Sahrawi poets uh, use Aeolian aesthetics to challenge hegemonic underst colonial understandings of wind, and that that's very interesting because sort of an aesthetic concept of 
wind and I guess uh, related energy seems to be an inherently a completely different type of concept to um, you know um, industrials or or you could say sort of economic um, uh, understandings of the wind and mm. so initially it seems very interesting how sort of a disagreement between those could arise since they're sort of so so different in in sort of type um could you could you perhaps sort of explain how that could be yeah of course yeah so um mentioned the natural resources issue and how this is linked to the, the colonization of the Sahara and the continued occupation so um Morocco is a leader in green energy at the moment um, but the problematic thing about how it promotes its green energy achievements and plans is that a lot of these wind developments and solar developments are, are not in Morocco, they're in occupied Western Sahara. Right. So by 2030, I think about half of Morocco's envisaged wind capacity will be from the, the occupied territory. So I've been interested at looking more into these developments how they relate to energy politics but also how the corporations behind these developments imagine the saharan winds and the sahara um discursively um mm -hmm. and so if we look at promotional videos by siemens for example so siemens gamesa is one of the companies behind a lot of the wind developments in occupied western sahara um and from my perspective the way they paint the Sahara and the people who live there um, is repeating the civilizing mission discourses that are so typical of European colonialism, um, the natives as barbaric and uncivilized and needing mm -hmm. European help and European technological innovations to make capitalist use of their territory um, and of the desert as a wasteland um, that is hostile and useless to everyone if it weren't for Siemens making use of the wind and the way they use the sounds of the wind in these videos, like this howling gothic mm. sound, mm. Um, the way that sounds depicted, it's horrible sandstorms engulfing everyone and it's just a pain and it's mm. hostile and horrible. So on the one hand, I've been looking at how Wind companies imagine the winds and the wind blown, so sand and so on, and the geological elements of the Sahara, which are, are shaped by wind, um, aeolian geomorphology, um, how companies use these to create these um, terra nullius discourses and this continued idea of a civilizing mission. And then on the other hand, I've been interested in how indigenous Saharawis who've lived as nomads in this environment for mm -hmm. centuries and centuries, how they imagine Saharan winds in a different way um, and what that might mean for energy developments led by nomads um, and indigenous Saharawis. And so one thing to say about poetry and Sahrawi culture, it's it's really central to Sahari culture and to daily life. So I've mm -hmm. used the example of 
political candidates using poetry in their campaigns, but also teenagers with a love interest, they'll text, they'll write a poem and text it to their love interest. It's it's normal oh, cool. and everyday and everyone writes poetry, everyone recites it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and this comes from the nomadic tradition. So nomads can navigate incredibly well in the Sahara Desert, as, as you'll, you'll know. Um, but something that helps them with their navigation is poetry. So it's an wow. easy way to remember things that a nomad needs to know, not just for navigation, mm-hmm. but also things like which plants you need to treat certain ailments of your camel, um, the history, histories and so on. It's all transmitted through poetry. So it had a really strong pedagogical role in nomadic mm-hmm. culture. And what we see with the Saharan winds was these were important and useful elements for nomads. So they'd know the the patterns of the wind very well and they'd have different names to help identify them. So um, for example, um, one of the coastal winds, the Sahalia, it most of the time blows at night and it always blows in a particular direction. So if you're navigating at night and you feel the wind on you, then you can tell which way is west. Um, so they could use, they use mm. the knowledge of the winds to navigate. They'd use it to know where to find water and forage for their camels. They'd use mm. it for, in terms of the wind sound. You could mm-hmm. hear a danger coming. So wind is like a sentinel. Um, I can't understand fully all the ways that they use yeah. the wind, but basically. Whereas if you, really... uh, whereas if you dropped a Jamie in the, in the desert, you would. Uh... I, would I would die very quickly. Yeah, me too. <laughs> hey, I try, I try very yeah. hard. Yeah. You would run really, really fast and slow down bit by bit. <laughs> yeah. That's right. No, but, but these these sound um, almost like it is fascinating. Saying, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like almost unbelievable. Obviously, completely. It is. Yeah. You, but no, I know it's it's an incredible, it incredible, incredible knowledge. Yeah. yeah. So, so basically, in traditional Sahari nomadic poetry, wind is very present, and I think aesthetically, it's reflected in the poetic features that that poets use. Mm-hmm. Even those that have never known nomadism, they 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 draw from that tradition to some extent. Um, the yeah, the static tools like rhyme and assonance and how they reflect the sounds of the wind. Mm-hmm. Um, this is my idea in describing this Aeolian aesthetic, these wind-infused aesthetics, um, yeah. and it paints a different picture of the wind. So. It's not something that's useless and barbaric to repeat the European colonial language. Um, and yeah, so the, this this poetry challenges the constructions of the Sahara and its winds that corporations put forward. And the poets that are writing, they're conscious of these developments and what they mean for Sahari self-determination. They're very politicized poets. So um they know about Siemens. Um, they're involved in campaigning. So it's not a sort of mm-hmm. um, I don't think I'm imposing 
my interpretation of their poetry is resistance. Um, it's yeah. um, from their perspective too. I do want to very quickly read a few lines that really stood out to us when we were reading your 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 paper. Um, really, really great paper, by the way. Um, oh, thank you. Just for for everyone who is listening, I just have. The full title is Decolonizing Renewable Energy, Aeolian Aesthetics in the Poetry of Fatma Ghali Muhammad Salim and Limam Boisha. And in the uh, concluding remarks, let me just quickly find that. There you go. There's a few lines that really, I guess, sum up uh, quite well, I think, your, your, your paper, which is... Um, Emerging from this culture are what I call alien aesthetics, uh, poetry and visual art informed by wind in their structures, motifs, imagery, and rhetorical devices. Alien aesthetics are characterized by a decided appeal to the senses through which we know the wind, sound and touch and visions of the wind blown. On a political level, they undermine hegemonic understandings of energy, which make nature, in this case wind, something to be harnessed and dominated in order to power capitalism, colonialism. Um, I found that, yeah, that, that's, uh, I don't know. I feel like when we read this, something ticked a little yeah, bit yeah. for us, oh, thanks. Uh, for both of us. Um, yeah, you say, sorry, just a little bit more. <laughs> the poet do so. The poets do so first by showing uh, the wind's role as a creative force, both in the artistic sense and also in the geological sense. Um, and then, yeah, I guess throughout the paper as well, you kind of just explain really well how this this relation to the wind undermines the relations of capitalism and 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 petrocultural society and and just modern like Western, I guess, views of uh, of this and. And um, and I wonder how um, have you have you been able to talk about this and to show this kind of perspective to people who were in let's say on the other side of the aisle, like on the that petrocultural side, on that like more capitalist side, maybe people who are in charge of wind projects or something. And I um, wonder if you were able to what the reaction has been to this like. Diff to this kind of almost opposite really uh worldview right mm. oh well um because i st still volunteer with resource watch i i am often trying to communicate with these corporations um but i've never got anywhere near encouraging them to read mm -hmm. an article of mine it's normally um no response um at all um or an occasional response every every few months perhaps um on one occasion at a conference um i did meet a representative of um siemens uh, by coincidence so right at durham university this is a few years ago there was um a conference on um carbon democracy so Timothy Mitchell was the keynote speaker and there were lots of papers around um, these issues, I suppose, of petroculture, oil and resistance and so on. And um, I talked a bit about some of my fieldwork in Occupied Western Sahara and these energy developments, sort of the politics of the developments and how they, they fuel the occupation, in my opinion, and entrench them. 
Um, and I didn't know there was a man from Siemens in the audience because um, I think they have some partnerships at Durham University. And he said that there were no Siemens wind farms in occupied Western Sahara. Okay. Which was not true. And I said immediately, well, I've seen them with my own eyes. Um, <laughs> they're yeah. there. And then to that, he responded that he'd been there and that the, the population of the territory consented to them and that he'd been involved personally in the consultations. Right. So if, they, so, if they're not, they don't exist, but if they do, people... Yeah, yeah, yeah. but actually, okay, they, you know they do. So, it, yeah. Was, yeah. But this is, yeah, generally the response we... Um, so Resource Watch, um, following international law, we think, um, and well, through the presidents of various course cases court cases specifically on resources from western sahara you can't you can't exploit the resources of an occupied country without the consent of the indigenous people of that country so it's sort mm. of um yeah well, what what um i mean i guess what is the punishing organization or yeah punishing yeah. organization or body in that case because i exactly yeah I mean, you know, well You'd, I, I mean, perhaps it should be the UN. Mm -hmm. um, the UN did publish a legal opinion on this matter in 2002. So okay. there were various oil companies which had agreements with Morocco to drill for oil onshore and offshore Western Sahara. The UN legal opinion was that this would be illegal if it was against the wishes and interests of the people mm -hmm. of the territory. So there's this always this discussion on who have you consulted with? How did you get Sahrawi consent? Um, there's been a few court cases in the EU High Court, the High Court of England and Wales, High Court of South Africa, and the latest one was EU ruling that it has to be the Polisario who gives consent. Right. But what the companies always do is say they've consulted the local population but if you consult the settler population that's very different to consulting mm. the indigenous mm. population yeah so and even the polisario i'm guessing uh, have i don't know without knowing the conflict it, it's you know in many of these types of conflicts the elite ruling kind of class well the, the people at the top who are politically um privileged then end up becoming some sort of like elite class that then agree to these kind of uh, demands or principles or something with personal benefits involved mm. so then it doesn't become hard to get the local approval if that means getting the approval from the elites uh, as long as you're willing to uh, to satisfy their wishes i guess mm. yeah i mean there, there's no company has ever consulted with Polisario. Normally Polisario okay. has expressly told them, please don't do this, but right. it's it's ignored. And as you say, who's responsible for policing this? Mm -hmm. um, the answer so is they're... no one bothers. <laughs> so I guess they're not even recognized as uh, really as like representatives, so they can't become an elite in a sense. Well, officially they're the only representative of the Sahari people for the UN. So okay. the companies could consult with them, but they don't. They don't have any interest in doing so because right. their agreements are with Morocco. Um, yeah. And as you say, uh, 
there are often personal benefits involved. So with the fisheries, for example, so it's mostly the EU has fishery agreements with Morocco so that they can continue fishing in Western Sahara's waters. It's mostly Spanish vessels that benefit. Mm-hmm. And so um, apart from these licenses that are given to EU vessels, um, Morocco also has licenses which it gives to local elites. So there's a lot of powerful families in Occupy Western Sahara that have mm-hmm. a load of fishing licenses and they sublet them to make money. Um, so, and with renewable energy, um, with the exception of one wind farm, which is owned by a cement factory, all the wind farms in Occupied Western Sahara are owned by Mohammed VI um, or his company, basically. So right. there's definitely financial interest there, as you say. Yeah, um, it's interesting because I've been reading a lot about um, this kind of topics for, for my own thesis, um, like on on the wind renewable energies and then uh, land grabbing especially like green grabbing and stuff like that but um but this seems like i don't know almost like another scale (laughs) like like Mm. usually the examples that i find from uh you know all sorts of different authors in the field are like examples of land grabbing at the at the scale of like you know levels of towns or or hectares and things like this but this seems like i mean state nation level kind of grabbing mm-hmm. of yeah. uh, of land i mean i guess you know with the colonial uh relationship that's just what happens but um i'm just interested in in like since you've you've done a lot of research on this topic specifically for years it would would you say would you qualify the relationship as colonial like would you use that word Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. definitely i mean all the traits the traits you see in colonialism and especially settler colonialism you see um in occupied western sahara so um because i know it's quite a loaded word in a sense and you know uh, like a colony and and mm. i don't know people around the world i guess seem to think that they we live without colonials in like a post-colonial mm. period mm-hmm. but it seems like well no there are still um you know i know there are conflicts that some agree or disagree but this seems like mm. rather more obvious i would say yeah yeah i mean um so for the un western Sahara is officially a colony so it's the only okay. in and it's the only African country that's still on the UN UN decolonization committee's list of non-self-governing territories. So wow. it's like in official terms, it's a colony. But mm-hmm. f- and from a legal side, you could debate it. Well, is it legally a Spanish colony? But in terms of practices, um, for me, it's an example of settler colonialism. So this attempt to eliminate the Sahari population first, napalming them, the mass slaughters and so on, and then moving a settler population into occupied Western Sahara. So Saharawis are a very small minority in occupied Western Sahara now. Um, and then the sort of cultural means of eliminating um, what it means to be Saharawi. So as I said, Saharawis are traditional, traditionally nomads, um, but um, in, since 2010, Saharis are not allowed to pitch tents anymore, so they can't put up a tent anywhere. Wow. 
um, often if saharis have camels that are slaughtered um it's really hard to be a nomad basically yeah and um at the same time i think in the early years of the occupation in morocco at the time it was the years of lead so it was a really oppressive time for moroccans it was even more so for saharawi so it's just a utter terror really you you, you couldn't if you talked about Polisario or Western Sahara rather than the southern provinces. It, people would just be terrified to do that. Forced disappearances, really horrific time in terms of human rights. Um, and that this attempt to stamp out every differential trait of Saharawis. Mm. So as you know, if you um we define our national identities by what we aren't. So for Saharawis, it's important to celebrate what makes them Saharawi and not Moroccan. So their traditional dress, speaking Hassania rather than Daraja. So the first tactic, I think, of the Moroccan regime was to try and stamp out Saharawi cultural markers. But as that wasn't successful, Saharis resisted. What we see since about 2007-ish, I think, is an attempt to make Moroccan settlers Sahrawi. So okay. Morocco will pay people to study Hassania. Um, it'll encourage them to wear Melifa, um, which is the Sahari woman's traditional dress, and to identify as Sahrawi. So okay. and um, is that yeah, like I'll a, a kind of tactic to appear better than they are on the world stage? I th or I th I think it's I think it's a settler colonial tactic of eliminating Saharawis as a different population by making the Sahara identity just one more identity right. within multicultural Morocco. Okay, I so see. So yeah. it's like reverse settler colonialism or <laughs> extreme cultural appropriation, maybe. My like God, a, yeah, that's, that's assimilation or something. Yeah, uh huh, yeah. But assimilating uh, the settler population with the indigenous one rather than the normal way of doing it, yeah. of forcing a migrant population to assimilate with the, mm -hmm. the host country. And is there is there aim, do you think, to kind of um to make what's the word? To make the Saharawi um culture much more like uh what do you call it? To add water to it. <laughs> dilute it, yeah. <laughs> to dilute yeah, it. So. There you go. Yeah. Sorry, my brain went to uh, no, bugged no. out for a second. Um, yeah. So um on the one hand, Saharawis are oppressed if they express their own culture. So they might be mocked in school because their dialect sounds like a camel and insults like this, or Plasticized for speaking Hassania between themselves, mm -hmm. um, and not they're not allowed to have cultural events where they recite their poetry and things like that. But then in southern Morocco, there'll be a Hassania cultural festival, and so it it's more and more pushed in southern Morocco, so mm -hmm. that it becomes yeah this one identity of, of many in, yeah. in Morocco itself. And it's kind of something um, that, like, you can maybe spot even, I don't know, like, ar around the world, like, even I'm just thinking in Europe, um, I, 
I don't know, obviously it's not the same level of scale or anything like that, but on the cultural kind of appropriation and and um and pushback at the same time, like this this double pronged approach. Um it reminds me a little bit of the way that like European countries can somehow sim simultaneously discourage people from like for example you know black british people from uh representing their culture through like dressing or uh, even hairstyle something as simple as that but then at the same time be those same places and people can be super proud of hosting like black history events and things like that and so it's like this yeah. kind of do you think do you think that the yeah. you know our society is also a little bit uh guilty of maybe yeah. not obviously as uh it's not as as overt as the this this example of morocco and western sarah sorry yeah that's a great example that sounds really similar actually um okay. yeah that's, and um yeah, that's I, exactly yeah. that yeah, I just wanted to, to talk about your uh, your article, uh, Oppressive Energopolitics in Africa's Last Colony, um, that you wrote with uh, Mahmoud uh, Lamadal and Hamza Lakhal um, for Antipod, which is, I have to say, one of my favorite uh, journals. <laughs> so yeah. super happy to have uh, Antipod uh, scholar on the on the show um for anyone that's uh, list, that is wishing to get a good dose of radical geography um antipode is for sure one of the better journals out there uh in this article you talked about the way that uh, morocco uses energy as a tool uh to oppress and I was wondering if what kind of um, if if you've experienced this yourself, basically, because you talked about things like power cuts, um, mm -hmm. things like how the energy grid in general is basically weaponized by the settler state. Have you seen this for yourself? Yeah. So the idea of the article came from researching my book, basically. So I stayed with um, in a friend's house over a summer and. Um, one of the reasons Western Sahara is so unknown is it's not open to journalists or people that want to speak to Saharawis. You can go as a tourist um, mm. as long as you don't ask anyone about Western Sahara or speak to Saharawis. <laughs> but it's really basically to do research there, I had to stay inside a house and not go near the windows. And um, right. so, um, yeah, so when I was there there were a lot of there were power cuts and a lot of water cuts and um so I had to ask my my host family about these and they tell me about how power cuts are used as a form of collective punishment basically and this is where the idea from the article came from and originally I hoped that I might be able to sort of do some sort of quantitative research on this as well so somehow mm -hmm. measure which pa power cuts happen when and how frequently for how long and which districts and it, yeah this just proved impossible so mm -hmm. um in the article we focus on sahari people's perspectives so um they perceive this to be used as a form of collective punishment mm -hmm. um and that power cuts happen 
happen most frequently in the districts dominated by Sahrawis and around um, particular important um, political events. So for example, if a political prisoner is freed or pardoned, um, there'll be a big party in their home city and this is when a power cut will happen. Um, or if there's a, there's a lot of protests, then there'll be a power cut. So it's used to oppress political dissent and also yeah. when there's uh, to punish the Sahari population as and well. And collective punishment yeah. is absolutely illegal uh, under, like, especially civilians <laughs> like this. But I guess, I don't know if qualitative research uh, allows you to kind of pursue the legal paths would you need like quantitative data like proof like in quantitative way to to i guess sue the moroccan state for for that oh possibly yeah but i mean i think there's a lot of aspects of moroccan rule and western Sahara that would be illegal and yeah. they're not held to account at all mm-hmm. so i i doubt i'd i'd try but um yeah, I guess because of the the type of data that we had, we framed it in terms of perspectives and what that meant in terms of um, how people identify as citizens. Mm-hmm. So um, we felt that the way the energy system is used, it reinforces the boundary between feeling Sahrawi and identifying with with Morocco, it's it's one more way of punishing the Sahrawi community as Sahrawis, which um, further um, uh, what's the how to put it heartens people's minds and feelings towards. Um, Sahari Republic and identifying with Polisario and pro-independence sentiments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, maybe we can just uh, get into your book um, and uh, and slowly uh, wrap it up. Yeah, yeah. great. Yeah. yeah. So the book um, was an exploration, I suppose, of how gender shapes authoritarianism, but also resistance, particularly nonviolent resistance. Um, and it focuses on Equatorial Guinea and Western Sahara um, and looks at first at um, how Aquatic Guinean and Sahari women resisted Spanish colonialism um, and their involvement in uh, the non-violent, non-violent nationalist movements pushing for, for, for independence in both cases um, and, and the gendered elements of their resistance. Um, and then, then after that, it looks at similar questions, but with regards to Moroccan occupation of Western Sahara on the one hand and um, the post-colonial authoritarian dictatorships in Equatorial Guinea on the other hand. And, I develop an argument about resistance being intersectional, just as oppression mm. is, and um, about gender washing. So this is the idea that um, companies and regimes 
paint themselves as state feminists or pro-gender equality um, to reinforce their own power um, and how activists undermine that, I suppose. So yeah. like, an interesting concept that runs through the book um, is the concept of imaginaries. And initially, I, I assumed that that was just sort of a, a very similar or another word for just narratives or discourse, but it seems to be a bit more nuanced uh, than that in reality. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm interested in um, how people imagine gender and national identity, I suppose, as the other big one in the book um and how um national identities can can be um imagined as gendered too and using examples from poetry sometimes as well um in both cases and song <coughs> excuse me um yeah and um so so the kind of cases you address, so um, in Equatorial Guinea and Western Sahara, you say that uh, the resistance movement in one in one case is dominated by women and the other by men. So just mm. this kind of question of intersectionality, like why why are those patterns there? Okay. Sort of yeah, like how how is this sort of gender based oppression in each case like overlapping with other forms of oppression to make those patterns appear? Okay, yeah, I think. Um, <clears throat> it's hard to sort of um, mm. draw a line between colonial and pre-colonial times. It's sort of a, uh, yeah. Um, but I'll, I'll attempt to anyway. I, I, I think with Saharis, for example, the way they construct their history, when they look back, then talking about gender roles or gender imaginaries, as you said, um, Politics has always been constructed as part of women's proper role. Um, so Saharis will talk about their nomadic history and how women would take control of the camps, especially if men were away um, with the camels looking for pasture and so on. Um, it's politics is seen as something that's naturally feminine. Um, and Spanish colonialism in Spanish Sahara was very different, I think, to how it worked in Spanish Guinea. So um, in Spanish Guinea, there was a, a huge effort on the part of Spain to make the indigenous population Spanish. Um, so this Catholicism, most Aquaticanaeans are still Catholics today. Um, coercion so um things like in the classroom if um aquatic Indian wasn't speaking spanish um she'd be physically punished a real strong attempt over centuries to kick out um indigenous cultures and replace them with spanish a really strong cultural colonialism and we didn't see that in Spanish Sahara. There was never any attempt to Catholicize the population. It was purely about extracting resources. And there was an attempt to make Saharis into Spaniards in the same way that you see in other contexts. So um, Saharis, I suppose, have retained their pre-colonial culture 
um, to a much greater extent, they weren't oppressed in the same way culturally as the Ghanaians. Um, and with the Quata Ghanaian women, we have the, the Spanish Falange's women's section, which existed in Spanish Sahara as well, but was sort of rejected. The women's section in Spanish Guinea would basically try to force Quata Ghanaian women to take on the Spanish Catholic, Catholic housewife model. Um, of Franco's times and before. Um, so gender norms there were shaped in a certain way, um, which made politics an improper activity for women. And so, and it's still that way today. So um, there's a great article by Enrique Okemve, an academic hist a historian who's also um, an aquatic Ghanaian activist um, and he has a paper with um, a title in in Fang which I won't try to repeat but it, he translates it as you're bad mouthing you, you're talking politics so it's completely taboo um, uh, for both genders today really but I think what we saw in the Spanish colonial, colonial era is that um, street protests the pro-independence movements were seemingly dominated by men because gender roles had made it that way. So the gender roles shaped by Spanish colonialism made it that way. But women were very much involved in the resistance. It's just that what we often understand to be resistance sometimes excludes forms of resistance that women use. So we'll mm. focus on the very visible street protests mm. or on the members of organized formal movements. And this makes women's resistance invisible or silenced, even if it existed and, and it did exist in Spanish Guinea. Um, yeah. yeah. And the, in the Sahara, on the other hand, women are very visibly part of resistance movements and the things that we typically associate um, with uncritical definitions of resistance, I suppose. So street protests, um, positions in um, organised political movements and so on. Um, so I think it stems from how colonialism did or didn't impact mm. upon indigenous gender norms. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, maybe just the final question. I don't know. I don't know if you... Yeah want to do one more scandal um just finally so yeah this this concept of gender washing is very interesting because i i've been familiar with you know terms like greenwashings and not not specifically gender washing before um and i wonder how so in gender washing i could say that the um these regimes are presenting a particular narrative uh of sort of uh liberty for women or a certain conception of uh, gender equality um how do they deal with sort of alternative um popular based and like progressive conceptions of gender equality that i would say are you know more authentic how how do they seek to sort of override and delegitimize those okay. alternative narratives yeah well um in the aquatic Ghanaian case um <clears throat> The way it, the regime markets itself um, inside Equatorial Guinea and abroad is sort of very pro-gender equality, 
um, highlighting lots of um, <clears throat> projects for women's empowerment, but there's very little substance to them. Um, it seems purely a PR exercise with almost no material mm. effort at all. Um, and when aquatic and Indian feminists put forward new policies or laws or initiatives, um, <clears throat> sometimes they more or less manage some activities without with very little support from the government. And sometimes they're um, directly oppressed. So um, there was a woman I met in my field work and we were anonymized in the book, but um, she worked for the Ministry of Social Affairs, but she'd been co-opted into the job basically. So I think she'd retired to Equatorial Guinea after working for women's rights organizations in Spain for most of her life. And um, she didn't want this job, but she was basically told that she was doing it. And she'd, she's been very critical within the government of their record on gender equality, mm. but started to receive death threats for criticizing them basically. And um, um, she was pushing for a new family law, but just not only could she not get it passed, but she was receiving threats um again for her efforts so um it's extremely hard for aquatic and feminists basically on the one hand obiang the dictator markets himself as pro-gender equality but there's no no efforts on his part and the meaningful efforts are, are sort of actively oppressed so yeah, yeah. um in with regards to Mohammed the Sixth, I have to say, to be honest, I've never done any research in Morocco or Moroccan society. I've read some articles by Moroccan feminist academics who were who were critical of Mohammed the Sixth's efforts or sort of um, skeptical about his positioning of himself as sort of. A, a state feminist and so on but I, I don't know much about it but in terms of um, occupied Western Sahara the way women activists are treated the sort of very gendered forms of violence that they're subjected to for me it really lays bare the hollowness of yeah. the Moroccan regime's claims of, of being pro-gender equality at least in terms of their policies in, in Western Sahara. Mm -hmm. So so rather than sort of a public clash of two different narratives, it's more like the um, the state narrative is has a pretense that it's appealing to the the uh, the popular narrative, but in reality isn't, and in private is actively fighting against it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, this um, pretext um, and the in reality actively undermining it. Mm. I think, yeah. Hmm. yeah um i think we're gonna potentially wrap it up now would that be all right jamie Do you have yeah, any, yeah. No? yeah um just because we have to unfortunately limit the the length sometimes of, uh, of episodes yeah. a little bit yeah. uh, so otherwise we get going for for two three four hours yeah. and then <laughs> people <Yeah>. tune out <laughs> um but um. uh 
but yeah, Dr. Thank Joanna you. I really Allen. enjoyed that. Tom, yeah, thank you so, so much. nice to have an opportunity to talk about my work and so in so much depth. Of course. Great thank questions. You. So thanks very <laughs> it's, it's really unique stuff. It's really interesting. Yeah. Like I have to say that the, the mix wanna... of aesthetics and politics like that is yeah, it's yeah. It's yeah, it's very yeah. unique. Thanks um, very much. But uh yeah, uh that was uh Dr. Joanna Allen from the University of um Northumbria and uh you can find her book uh what was the exact title sorry silence uh, resistance. resistance yeah i, I always <laughs> for all my academic books i'm always terrible at remembering the second lines you know women dictatorships and gender washing in western sahara and equatorial guinea I'm reading it. Out. There we go. <laughs> so that came out in 2019. Um, but I guess uh, if you're interested in reading this, you can find it online uh, and, and order the book. Otherwise, there are plenty of articles that Joanna has uh, authored and co-authored that you can have a look at. Um, and yeah, we highly recommend, obviously, the two that we specifically mentioned um, today, the one on alien aesthetics, which super cool uh, word, by the way, <laughs> mm -hmm. and um, and the other one on uh, energo, do, do you say energo politics? I think so. Yeah, yeah. I borrowed okay. the term from um, Dominic Boyer's um, okay. his work. So I, I think it's energo politics. But, right, yeah. right. Okay. Um, but yeah, thank you for helping us get uh, definitely a clearer, better understanding mm -hmm. of the region of Western Sahara, of Sahrawi culture as well, because like we said before, this is something we're really not acquainted with. And I have to say, it feels good to, you know, to like to speak to someone who definitely knows her stuff, has worked on this. And so we feel like we are much more equipped um, with this kind of knowledge from as, at least as well as a, a safe source um because yeah, god knows the it's difficult sometimes to get a hand on these complex topic um, oh, yeah. conflicts mm. and topics but thank you for the work that you do thank you for coming oh, you. on the show and uh, we hope to see your work online and around soon and uh, come back uh, anytime you've you yeah. know <laughs> there's other Are work you? that you want to talk about <laughs> oh, i'd love to thank you i'd love to that was it's been really nice to talk to you, Skander and Jamie.